Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm adding another phase to the show today where I'm answering frequently asked questions that I get. And I'm starting with the ones that I typically get from my students and clients. We're going to talk about everything from back pain to weight loss to breaking through plateaus. So this should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Stick around. Welcome to the More to Movement podcast, where we break down the science behind movement and provide you with tangible takeaways so you can take charge of your health and fitness and achieve lasting results. If you're ready to optimize your efforts, move with purpose, and invest in your health and performance with confidence and vigor, you've come to the right place. Here's your host, Pete Rowletter. Hey, what's up, everyone? So glad you can join me today for episode number six of the More to Movement podcast. We're taking a break from the movement series that I've been chatting with you about over the last couple of episodes, and I'm going to bring it all together in a very real and straightforward way. I'm answering questions today, and these questions include a bit of everything, health, fitness, weight loss, plateauing, and even me and my own movement development. This is another element of the show that I'm really excited to get rolling. Now, it's great to hear from me and and learn all about all the concepts that I've been talking about, but I also want to help this make sense for you and your unique movement, health, fitness, and goals. So if you have questions or if a topic I've talked about triggered something, you just have to ask. So reach out to me, send me those questions, and I'll answer as many as I can on the next Frequently Asked Questions episode that I do. You can get in touch with me by visiting my website, mortemovement.com, and drop me a line. I would really like to do these monthly and um, answer your questions, but it kind of depends on the questions that I get. So start sending them my way. As I said earlier, I'm going to answer these questions in a very straightforward way. Jump into the outcomes to get the point across. I'm not going to be spending a lot of time talking about the background. So keep in mind that I will cover a lot of these concepts in more detail in future episodes. So if I breeze over something that you want to know more about, It'll probably be in an episode all on its own. But again, if you want to know more about it, reach out to me. Be happy to chat with you. And since the show is new, I thought I'd start with frequently asked questions that I receive from my students and clients because I believe that many of their questions really would help a lot of you. Additionally, as I stated earlier, it puts the stuff that I've been talking about over the last few weeks into real world context. So hopefully some of you have these same questions and they resonate with you. So let's, let's get started. Question number one, Pete, you talk a lot about efficient movement and correcting patterns. What are your expectations when correcting someone's movement? Does perfect movement exist? The answer to this question is something I established very early in my courses, that ideal outcomes are relative. Yes, we're trying to move the best that we can, but we have to recognize that we're imperfect beings with flaws. Everyone is unique and comes with some, quote, baggage, so to speak, such as previous injuries, structural differences, or differing torso and limb lengths. This doesn't make it hopeless. On the contrary, it provides an exciting challenge, and that challenge is to develop as optimally as possible, all within our unique parameters and limitations. Let me give you an example. If you listen to my first podcast episode, I shared with you that I've had eight surgeries on my right knee and that the surgeon aged my knee at 89 years old. So due to the extent of those injuries and repairs, I can't flex my right knee or bend my right knee as far as my left knee. 
I have some structural issues preventing perfect bilateral balance. However, it hasn't stopped me from finding ways to improve my range of motion in that knee. Is it perfect? Far from it. But am I improving my movement quality as optimally as possible? You bet I am. And that's the goal. And improving movement quality, even in the littlest ways, has enormous ripple effects. So what are my expectations, you ask? To do my best in helping everyone reach their potential that best suits them and their unique capabilities. So the takeaway for this question, aim for progress, not perfection. Question number two, Pete, as a female, will lifting weights make me build muscle? I have to give you context for this question. Typically, this question is in reference to mass building, as I've had many female clients and students express concerns with resistance training as it would, quote, make them bulky. The answer to this question is yes, resistance training can build muscle. And I emphasize the word can because it really comes down to how you train. Overloading tissue, regardless of gender, will elicit a response. The response is determined by the intensity and duration of the stimulus. Some examples would be load or time under tension or the velocity of a contraction. So yes, muscle is developed when you resistance train. Now, the question of whether you'll bulk or not, well, that depends significantly on how you train. If you're training at moderate to high loads with high volume and minimal rest, and you're bringing muscle tissue to fatigue or even failure, and you are in a caloric surplus, then yeah, probably some hypertrophic effects will be going on. But if you drop the loads and the volume a bit and consume just enough calories to maintain your daily expenditures, then you probably have a different story. Of course, a few other things can influence your outcomes as well. Some examples would be like hormones and your genetics. So you have to factor those in too, but it really comes down to how you train, not the resistance training itself. So your takeaway for this question, know how to train for the goals you want so that you can get the most out of your efforts. Question number three, Pete, why does my lower back always hurt? This question is asked all the time and I usually fire back with a simple statement. You sit too much. Of course, there's usually more to it, but unless you have a specific injury, most lower back problems are results of poor movement patterns. And yes, sitting for long periods of time is one of them. There'll be a whole episode on this topic, but since it's asked so often, I wanted to provide kind of a truncated version of this. When we talk about the lower back, we're referring to an area made up of several bones, lumbar spine, the sacrum, and the pelvis. These bones as a whole make up the hip complex, also known as the lumbopelvic hip complex. Dense muscle and fascial tissues surround the hip complex and not only connect and provide integrity for the articulating bones, but they help balance force transfer through the body. Ideally, the hips would maintain a neutral position most of the time. However, when we add poor movement patterns, such as prolonged sitting, tissue responds in kind. In the example of sitting, some muscles become chronically shortened, especially the hip flexors, while others become chronically lengthened and weak, specifically the glutes. This imbalanced combination of tight on one side and slack on the other tips the scales and specifically the hip complex. The hip actually will tilt forward and it will create an arch in the back. We call that lordosis or excessive lordosis. If you're struggling with that visual, think of someone walking around with duck butt. 
and that should help a little bit with the imagery. That hip position creates a significant imbalance in muscle activation and contribution, and all that dysfunction spills over at the vulnerable articulation of the spine and the pelvis, aka the lower back. Most people can actually start to improve their discomfort by changing their poor habits and by working to balance those muscles. Typically, that includes stretching and releasing the tight ones, like the hip flexors, and activating the weak ones, like the glutes. We'll address this at length, like I said, but your takeaway for this question? Work to modify the habits that you know are contributing to poor movement. Some examples would be prolonged sitting, looking down at your mobile devices, or spending a long time in shoes with like a wedge or high heels. Awesome. Moving right along. Question number four. Pete, what's the best way to lose weight? For as simple as this question is, it's also crazy complex. I've been working on a comprehensive post on this topic for some time now, but in all honesty, it just keeps growing because although the answer is straightforward, it's influenced by so many factors, type of adipose tissue or fat, metabolism, genetics, lifestyle, your mindset, body type, caloric needs, the impact of food or type of exercise. And those are just to name a few. Without at least considering these factors, it's hard to suggest the most optimal, quote, one size fits all way to lose weight. This is not a cop out, but the reality is that outcomes are multifaceted and that there's more to reaching your goals, and in this case, weight loss, than a simple five-step plan. If it was that easy, why doesn't everyone succeed when they attempt to lose weight, right? With that said, weight loss comes down to supply and demand. Though we think our bodies hate us, in reality, it's just doing its job. And that's assuming, of course, that we aren't affected by disease. Fat is an energy powerhouse for the body. So when it's broken down, it provides more energy for cellular function than anything else. So if there's a surplus of fat or nutrients that can be stored as fat, do you think the body will just toss it and get rid of it? Not unless we set that expectation for our body. We have to disturb the status quo, guys. To lose weight, we need to be in a caloric or energy deficit, and we can accomplish that by consuming less energy or food and increasing the demand for energy within the body through exercise. Like I said, it's supply and demand. By exercising, you tell the body it needs lots of energy, and it will supply the demand. If we control the amount of energy coming in, i.e. food, then the body must find ways to supply it, namely the excess that is stored. So the golden question, how is it done? Generally speaking, it means consuming enough calories to meet your basal metabolic needs without exceeding your daily energy expenditure. And of course, expending more energy each day through exercise, specifically calorie demanding exercise with an elevated respiratory rate. Throw in some consistency, time, the right mindset, and you're on your way. Here's the real takeaway. To optimize this process, you need to individualize each of these components I just listed to fit your unique physiology, genetics, and lifestyle. This is where the real challenge begins. It means knowing the processes at work, tuning into what your body needs, and having the ability to adapt as your physiology adapts. There's a lot more to come on this, but this is a great start. So to recap, the takeaway is understand your energy needs, i.e. what goes in, Increase energy demands, 
i.e. what you expend through daily activity and exercise, and individualize the process based on your unique physiology and lifestyle. Hope that helps a little bit. Question number five. Pete, I've plateaued with my lifts. Any suggestions? Plateauing means one thing, guys. That adaptation has stalled. There can be many things that contribute, but typically I can narrow it down to just a couple. The first question I ask has to do with documenting your program. One of the biggest mistakes I see people make is not documenting or charting their training or their workouts and consequently their progress. Typically when I ask that question, they're the ones that say, it's all up here, man. And they point to their head. Really? Is it really all up there? You might remember what weight you used last time, but what about all the reps? Did you complete them all? When did you start to fatigue? What load percentage were you using? And what was your work to rest ratio? And for those cardio goers, how long did it take you to complete your session? What was your intensity, your average heart rate? And I could keep asking question after question about the program and their progress, but you see, without really knowing what you're doing, it's difficult to measure your progress, which makes it challenging to determine what type of variations you need to implement to trigger adaptation. Which leads me to my next question. What variables are you manipulating to disrupt your homeostasis? That's the big one, guys. Are you doing enough to force the body to adapt? If your threshold isn't challenged, change won't occur. Or it won't occur efficiently. Further, most people think the only way to drive improvement is by increasing load or lifting heavier weights, but that's not the only means. Here are a few to consider. You could decrease your rest intervals. You could increase your total training volume. You could increase the velocity of movements. You could focus on phases of movement, such as longer eccentric contractions and shorter concentric contractions. You could change rep schemes, like performing descending sets or adding cluster sets. You could compound your exercises back to back, or you could train based on fixed heart rates, meaning you work at a specific heart rate and rest once you hit that target. These are just a few, but I encourage you to be creative and find ways to challenge the system. So here's your takeaway for this one. First, document, chart, or notate your program so that you can evaluate areas of progress and areas of stagnation so that you can determine where new stimuli can be implemented to trigger adaptation. And secondly, disrupt your homeostasis. Manipulate training variables to elicit adaptation. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. Last question here, question number six. Pete, do you have movement discrepancies that you're addressing? Guys, I'm the first to point out my movement flaws and discrepancies because I think it helps me connect with my students and my listeners. In a way, it makes me real. And though I'm an expert at this stuff, it, it doesn't make me immune to humanity's flawed nature. So heck yeah, I got movement issues. And some of them are my fault from just past poor lifestyle choices. But some of them are not my fault. They're just from injuries or factors outside my control. But instead of resigning to them, I work on improving them all the time. If you recall, it's that movement mindset that I introduced. So what's going on now? Currently, I'm addressing some sacroiliac joint trouble, mostly due to some hypertonic tissue in my adductors and hip flexors. So I have some unilateral discrepancies, meaning that 
many of the joints in my right leg have less range of motion compared to my left, which throws many of my movements into kind of an asymmetrical pattern. What that means is one side has better movement quality than the other, and it forces my movements to be imbalanced. So what am I doing about it? I'm working on releasing tension through the overactive tissue that I just mentioned, and I'm activating tissue that may not be pulling their weight. So mainly the glutes and my core stabilizers. I do a lot of unilateral work so I can make sure to address those issues. And I spend a lot of time on my patterns, like just trying to correct the issues and reinforce those proper neural pathways. Probably sounds like a lot. Some of you are out there listening, like that seems like a lot, Pete, but if you want something to change, it has to be consistently reinforced. It must be a significant part of your life. If I only worked on this for like two minutes a day, I wouldn't see the results as efficiently or as quickly as I do. So my suggestion, be conscious of what you're trying to achieve and integrate it into your daily routines several times if necessary. Any chance I get, I'm lengthening tissue or doing isometric contractions to activate muscle. And it may seem a bit obsessive to some of you, but the way I see it is that Moving freely with minimal pain for life is well worth the few minutes every hour I spend working on it now. Just something to think about. Awesome, man. This was this was a lot of fun. I like I like answering these questions. And I, I hope to answer some of your questions soon. Thanks so much for spending some time again with me today. And like I just said, don't hesitate to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to hear about your thoughts, your movement issues, and your questions. If you have questions, visit moremovement.com and send me a quick message and I'll do my best to address them on the next Frequently Asked Questions episode that I do. In the next episode, we're going to jump back into that Principles of Movement series that we've been discussing. And specifically, we're going to discuss the roles of muscle and their interdependent relationship. Specifically, we're going to chat about the relationship of muscle length and muscle tension and how that interaction can either set us up for efficient movement or it can start us down the road to imbalance. This is all heading somewhere, guys. It's building up to a big discussion on dysfunction and then, of course, how to correct it. So that's where we're headed. Stay tuned, guys, all right? Thanks, everyone, and I really look forward to our next time together. Y'all have a great week, and remember, wherever you are, keep moving. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of More to Movement with your host, Pete Rowletter. If you enjoyed the show, please visit moretomovement.com where you can find this episode's show notes along with more episodes and articles to empower you on your journey.